Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 3rd Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Lord Jesus, um, life is difficult. And this week we have the gamut of the ways in which you call us to follow you from this week, bringing to Cy and Jess Slater, um, Ellie Lee, their firstborn daughter, to diagnosis of cancer in Carla, to another member family, Kurt and Jean Bowler, who lost a mom and mother-in-law this week. And yet, despite the mountain peaks and the valleys, This is exactly where you've called us to be. To be submitting ourselves to your word to make sense of our experience. Submitting ourselves to your spirit to draw us deeper. Submitting ourselves to your people where we find encouragement, strength, comfort, and partnership in the gospel. So Jesus, as we submit ourselves to your word today, we ask that you continue to do what you've always promised to do. We pray all of this in your name. Amen. What do followers of Jesus look like? This is an important question because our news media and your high school friend on Facebook are eager to put out what followers of Jesus look like. We're quick to provide caricatures of what it looks like to follow Jesus for better or for worse, but it's not just our world that needs clarity on what a follower of Jesus looks like. Actually, those who are inside of the church, followers of Jesus themselves, are benefited from clarity on this issue. And that's because Jesus doesn't give us cookie-cutter identity markers of what it looks like to follow Jesus. It's not that you hear the gospel, you repent, you slap a bumper sticker on your car, and now you are identified as a Christian. In fact, it's more difficult than that. In contrast to other religions... In the new covenant of grace, Jesus doesn't tell Christians, this is what you should wear. This is what you should eat. This is where you should live. Or that all of you should be married. Or that all of you should be single. In fact, if you look at Christianity across this room, across this city, this country, and this world, you would notice followers of Jesus are incredibly diverse. In most Western worlds, followers of Jesus gather every Lord's Day, every Sunday, in a big public space like this. That's what they do as part of their following of Jesus. In other, particularly Middle Eastern countries, the believers are still allowed to follow Jesus by gathering in a large public space, but they have to do it on a Friday because that's what the government permits for Christians to gather. They're allowed to gather on a Friday. In other closed or persecuted countries, those followers of Jesus can no longer meet in a large public space, but in underground house, tunnels, private places in their town. Sometimes on a Sunday, sometimes on a Tuesday, it looks different as they gather as a church. In many churches across the Western world, not only do you find believers coming on a Sunday to hear the word of God, but you might find a small splinter cell of those same Christians holed up in a coffee shop later on in the week, reading the Bible together, perhaps reading one of the many helpful Christian resources that are published by the church in their own language in a way that they can understand it. And yet for the small community of Jesus followers in Burkina Faso, Cameroon, as well as in far too many locations, those believers have no access to any resource, let alone scripture in their own language, and are reliant upon missionaries to do the difficult work of gospel articulation in a pioneer context. Today, you might be, like me, a married man with kids whose relationship towards discipleship, towards Bible reading, towards evangelism, looks different than a single college female or a 16-year-old who's in this same building. 
When we survey followers of Jesus, their lifestyles are incredibly diverse. And this leads to two warnings. The first is that we need to be careful to not import a cultural understanding of what it looks like to follow Jesus. Meaning, are we quick to say that followers of Jesus must look like 21st century Americans if they're going to follow Jesus well? The church is bigger than that. And yet the other warning is that we ought not look and say, well, following Jesus is so diverse, so broad, so subjective that we can't say with any certainty what it looks like to follow Jesus to each his own. The Bible actually tells us what it looks like to follow Jesus, though it tells us in ways that are culturally appropriate, that are big enough to go across cultures. And today we see this in the book of Luke. As we've been working through the story of Luke, today we encounter Jesus calling his first followers three of whom will be his closest friends in ministry. And in this account, we see steps where Jesus is increasingly calling these followers deeper and deeper and deeper until at the end, we're left with something unique. But we also see in the midst of this four aspects of discipleship, which are broad enough to be applied in any culture. And yet they're specific enough that you sitting here today might examine these and be able to apply them to your life This afternoon, they are broad and general, but they are specific and helpful. What we're going to see today as a big picture is this. In Luke 4, verses 5, or verses, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we're going to see that Jesus calls people by his word into a life of following him more and more. Jesus calls people by his word into a life of following him more and more. And we see four aspects of what it looks like to follow Jesus displayed in this text. There'll be a little more to each word, so don't panic, but it's desire, duty, deferral, and doxology. If you'll notice, they all start with D's, which means it's robustly biblical. (laughs) And this morning, what we're going to see is the way in which Jesus calls us deeper and deeper in each one of these aspects, each of these four D's. Each believer In fact, when you examine that, you might be stronger or weaker in any specific category, but to be a follower of Jesus means that you need to have every aspect of these in your life. And if you'll notice from what Jesse just read for us, this passage begins with two fishing boats, empty of fish, sitting on a shore, owned by disappointed and frustrated fishermen. But by the end of this passage, those same men leave those same boats brimming with fish, on the shore, and they walk away from all of it because they've been captured by the power of something greater. And I hope that we two together might have a similar experience of being captivated by the beautiful joy of following Jesus. And let's begin by reading our first three verses today. Luke 5, verses 1 through 3. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret. For those who are geography nerds, that's also the lake of Galilee, or the Sea of Galilee. And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and Jesus sat down and taught people from the boat. Have you ever been asked to write a paper or a short story, or maybe you're one who is super zealous and you want to write a book. And often the most terrifying thing to think about is where do you start? For some of you, that idea of where do you start is because you're so paranoid that you have anything to offer. The fact that you could meet that word count that the professor gave you seems astounding. Like, have you met me? For many of us, we have so many ideas pinging around in our head that it seems impossible to pick one of those places upon which we will launch the journey for whatever it may follow. And I have a really helpful point that I've learned in my years. I love writing. Uh, I love helping people communicate. And the best place to start, you ready for this? The top left corner of page one. That's it. Like, Like here's page one of my sermon. And that's where I started right here. It sounds simple, but that's what's needed. You cannot start if you don't start there. You might feel doubtful you could do anything more, but to start there is to be exactly where God wants you to be. 
You might be already thinking in your brain of what the bottom right of the last page looks like, but to get to the bottom right of the last page, you must first go page one, top left corner. It seems simple, but it's where everyone starts. Where does the path of following Jesus start? Where is the top left corner of the gospel? And here's what we see as our first point. It starts with a desire for the word of Jesus. Following Jesus begins with a desire for the word of Jesus. And we see this in this text, don't we? Jesus' fame is increasing and people are pressing in on Jesus. That's what we see in verse one. And this is unique because when we think of that, we Americans love our social bubbles. We all have different degrees of where that is. And any morning you have in our church, you'll realize that other people have different degrees of that social bubble than you. And we love each other anyway. And so what happens is it's not leaning in to here. They are pressing into Jesus. So many people are coming to hear Jesus, that they are squishing him with their persons. And this is the context in which we encounter our passage today. And why are they interested in Jesus? Verse one tells us, because they wanted to hear the word of God. It was just last week in Capernaum, if you would remember, that Jesus left those who were there saying this in verse 43, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus's words, hearing Jesus's words is where everyone starts when it comes to your relationship with Jesus. It is God's grace that he speaks to us. Without a speaking God, we have no hope. But because God has spoken to us in his word and through his son, we have hope to respond. And those words have been kind of the center point of Jesus so far in the book of Luke. In the temple, the the people who saw Jesus as a boy were amazed at his words. In Nazareth, they were astonished at his words. In Capernaum, we saw last week, they were once again amazed at his words. And it is at the word of this Jesus, the word of the gospel, The word that someone came into our mess to accomplish good news. Good news defined by Jesus in chapter 4 as freedom from sin, liberty from ailments, restoration, and favor with God. People were hearing this word and they couldn't get enough of it. They were desirous of it. Now it's important to note The desire on its own is woefully insufficient in the same way where if you go back to your teacher and you turn in a page that has simply one word in the top left corner, that too is woefully insufficient. This passage begins with lots of people desiring Jesus, so much so that they're willing to get get real personal with the person of Jesus, squishing him. But the end, what we're left with is a smaller group of distinct followers. And this is important for us because we all come to Jesus with different desires. We might desire Jesus for a number of reasons. I loathe snakes. I love to think that's because I'm a good theologian and snakes are the only creature who exists because they were cursed into existence. God cursed the legs straight off of it. So if you don't fear snakes, you have a problem. Yet despite my fear of snakes, whenever I would go to a zoo growing up, I would want to go to the snake exhibit. I desired it. Why? I thought, I desired that if I were around snakes enough. I remember going, we had a friend in East Missoula and he had a corn snake and I made myself hold the snake. It was terrible. For all six seconds it lasted But I thought that if I could get familiar enough with it, they would become less terrifying to me. That it would be normalized. That I would just see them as ordinary. There was no reason for me to have these kind of apprehensions in my heart and I could stop worrying about them. For many people, we desire Jesus' words because we might start to look out into our world and see its brokenness. We might look into our own hearts And realize that our hearts are wicked and we're not who we think we should be. And some of the things we desire, if we're honest with ourselves, are not things we should desire. 
And when we encounter that, we sometimes want to go to the word of Jesus. We desire to come and hear about this so that we might find relief and say, oh, I don't need to be fearful of that. That's a load of baloney. That there's some cosmic God that sits over all things. Like, I just feel guilty about this and I need to move on. That's all it is. Or perhaps we come and we realize that, yeah, I am sinful and our world is broken, but we hear the word of God and we say, that's it. I got it. I'm good. Now I can go back to living my life without fear. But it's not the presence of desire that creates a follower of Jesus, but instead what you do with that desire. In 2 Corinthians 2, Paul says that the word of the gospel is to some a fragrance of joyful life to life. But for others, that same gospel is the distasteful scent of death to death. An encounter with the gospel can drive you away, and an encounter of the gospel can drive you further. A true desire to follow Jesus doesn't create a casual experience where you come and you see and you walk away back to your normal life. But instead, a true desire is to hear the message of brokenness in our world, sin in your heart, and the promise of peace with God through Christ the Son, and to never want to walk away again. There's a scene in the Gospel of John where the crowds are being narrowed. Those who willingly, desirously follow Jesus are abandoning him because he has begun to talk about what the cost of following is. And he turns to his disciples and he says, do you wish to leave me too? And Peter, who we'll meet in just a little bit today, responds to Jesus by saying this in Luke 6, 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You cannot follow Jesus without wanting Jesus. The question is, who do you want Jesus to be? Is Jesus just the booster shot you need to go back and do everything you were already doing while having some sort of therapeutic relief from your failures, from judgment, from naysayers? Or do you see in Jesus the only solution to the weight and worry and wounds of your own heart and desire to press deeper and deeper into whatever may come because he alone has the words of life. Jesus is not a commodity to be purchased at a store and to return home. Jesus is a savior who calls us to follow him wherever he would go. And this is what we see next. Followers of Jesus not only desire his word, Our hearts are engaged in our following of Jesus. But our hearts also respond not only with desire, but duty towards the words of Jesus. That's our second point this morning, duty towards the words of Jesus. Look at verses two and three. And Jesus saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And so here we see the scandal of the incarnation. The incarnation is what Christians refer to. So in the flesh is what's incarnate, which sounds gross because we love carne asada and the fact of eating Jesus is a little bit distasteful. Um, And that's good. But here we see that there's this scandal that happens here, right? Jesus, as the eternal son of God, was born as a human for the first time in the nativity scene. But that was not the beginning of Jesus, was it? Jesus existed eternally as the son of God for all eternity past. And what do we know about this Jesus? Well, we know in Colossians 1, that it was through Jesus the world was created. It, was, it is by the word of Jesus, not only that it was created, but that this world is sustained. And so here we have God the son, who for all eternity upheld the world by his word, who for the first time in eternity past can't speak loud enough. Did you notice that? How frustrating that is for all of us who as we age, begin to wrestle to do things that were once easy for us to do. 
But what a beautiful thing that Jesus, your Lord, sympathizes with that. He encountered the limitations of the flesh. He couldn't address the whole crowd at one time. And so what did he do? He sought someone to help. He said, Peter, let's use your boat. Let's go out a little bit. And then I will speak to the crowds. Jesus invited others into his program of redemption. Simon was one who desired Jesus at this point. We know this. We actually met Simon through his mother-in-law last week. Simon followed Jesus. He knew Jesus, but here Jesus speaks to Simon. He goes and gets in Simon's boat and he says, let's go out a little bit. Take me out and I'll address the crowd. And the beautiful reality we see here in this text is that Simon sat under Jesus's word himself, but Simon also in right desire was called by Jesus to go a little deeper, to do a little bit more, to put out from the land. Jesus here asked Peter to participate in following him by helping other people follow him. For those who rightly desire Jesus, Jesus asks you to participate in helping others hear and see the message of Jesus. That's what Jesus is doing to Peter. Peter, help me help others. Help others hear the goodness of this gospel, the power of the word of God that I am proclaiming. And that's what discipleship is. Discipleship is following Jesus. And here we see a glimpse into the character of Jesus. Jesus calls others to himself. And so we as disciples call others to Jesus as we follow Jesus. This is the essence of discipleship. What two things, what are the two components of discipleship? We see this here in this text. A desire for God's word and a desire to help others follow God's word. At Sovereign Hope, we have a definition for discipleship, and it's this. Discipleship is helping each other follow Jesus in all of life through the gospel. This is the duty of those who have the word of God. This is why we at Sovereign Hope have covenant membership. We know that following Jesus is not an isolated individual experience, but we are called to help one another. That's the big picture of what's happening here with Jesus' disciples that we'll see developed later on in the book of Luke. Jesus' disciples are called to follow Jesus and to help others do the same. And if Jesus alone has the words of life, if Jesus is proclaiming the words of God, and if in conversion through faith, we also receive the words of God, then anyone who is now a Christian, you have the words of life. And there is a duty you have towards that to you yourself believe that, but also to call others to that. Look at this duty that Paul defines for the church in Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 12. And he gave, that's God gave, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints. That is all the Christians, right? We're not, when the Bible talks about saints, it's not talking about like the MVPs of the faith. It's talking about those who are made holy by the work of Jesus Christ. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. And so we might look at this text and we say, well, he's talking about Peter. And then later on, we meet James and John. Those dudes are apostles. And here we say, yes, they are apostles. And I am a pastor. And there are six other pastors here at this church. But what is the role of the apostles and the pastors and the shepherds and the prophets and the evangelists? It's to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Everyone is called to this. The gospel calls each of us to a duty of helping others hear and respond to the words of Jesus. So what does this look like in your life? That may be intimidating to think about. You might think, I don't know what it means for me to follow Jesus. How am I going to help others do the same? But that's why I love this passage, because we see the progressive growth of following Jesus. In fact, the way in which Jesus calls Peter to help in verse 4 looks a lot different than how Jesus calls Peter to help in verse 10. But at each step, Peter is just faithfully responding to what Jesus calls him to next. Yes, as being a disciple and follower of Jesus, we have a wonderful call that we see at the end of being a fisher of men of sharing the gospel with those who are lost in a beautiful, compelling way, openly. 
By the end of the gospel, or by the end of the book of Acts, we see Peter has embodied what it looks like to be a fisher of men. He is bold, he is fearless, he is passionate in his public proclamation of the gospel. God grows Peter's ministry into something that he never would have dreamed, and God will grow your ministry beyond your wildest imaginations too. But sometimes it starts not in the halls of Greek philosophers or the temple in Jerusalem. Sometimes it starts with the simplicity of using your boat to help other people hear Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Peter didn't go to that lake that day and say, today seems like a good day to be called an apostle. He went to the lake because that's what he did. He was a fisher. He went in order to fish. But in God's providence and by the compelling word of Jesus, Peter's work for his own provision turned into working for the provision of Jesus and for the many others who showed up that day. When Peter looked at that boat, he saw a reminder of a failed night of fishing. When Jesus looked at that same boat, he saw a platform for the proclamation of the gospel. And the beautiful reality is, is Jesus didn't just go sit in it and push out on his own. What did Jesus do? He invited Peter with him. He is calling Peter to participate in the Lord's plan to make disciples. Jesus will grow your duty of helping others hear and respond to his word. That's the what the Holy Spirit does. It takes small, simple steps and grows them as you learn to follow Jesus. But to start... I want you to think, what boats do you have laying around your life? What are places, passions, relationships, careers that you already have and Jesus might come and say, hey, we can use this. We can use this to introduce other people to the word of God. Peter didn't do anything with his boat at this point besides be a man at the oars. He just moved so that people could hear what Jesus himself had to say. What does it look like for you this week for the words of Jesus to be heard by somebody else? Kids, you have classmates, you've got neighbors. What does it look like for you to help them hear the word of God? Maybe that looks like inviting them to church or to community group. We've got invite cards on the desk out there. Take that with you. Invite somebody to come in here for the rest of us. This is actually a great conversation point. If you go out to lunch with someone after church, talk about this. At community group, talk about this. And here's why we need each other. Because oftentimes it's easier for me to see your boats than it is for me to see my own boats. To come in and to say, you might be too close to this, but do you realize what God might be able to do through this? This thing you already have. This thing you're already doing. Maybe you're going to the gym with somebody every week, that same person who's not a Christian. We could say, what does it look like to use that as a vehicle to help somebody follow Jesus, to help somebody hear the words of the gospel? But as simple as it may have been for Peter to let Jesus use his boat for preaching of the gospel, things get a little choppier as the story goes on. It was one thing to let Jesus borrow his boat as a pulpit, but when Jesus commandeers the boat as a fishing vessel, Peter responds a little differently. And this is our third point this morning. This is where following Jesus starts with desire. We see the duty, but there's also a deferral to the word of Jesus. To defer on something is to give the decision to somebody else. If you're a sports fan, whenever there's a coin toss in football, that's the only sport, I did that intentionally, you get the choice to defer. And what that means is you give the other team the right to choose first. In a life of following Jesus, we learn what it means to let Jesus choose first. Read with me this in Luke 5, verse 4 through 11. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, so Simon, Simon is also Peter, and so I'm using those words interchangeably if you're new. He said, put out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I'll let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. And they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. 
And they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. When they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. So Sarah and I have often had people say, and as people who don't know, that we are, in the scope of Sovereign Hope, a very small family. And they'll come to us and say, I don't know how you do it with four kids. And Sarah and I always say the same thing. We say, unless you're the runnings, God gives them to you one at a time. (laughs) You have the grace of growing into that. And here we see the kindness of Jesus' gentle growth in this passage of just coaxing Peter step by step a little deeper and a little deeper. He asks him first to put out a little bit so they can hear. And then he asks him to say, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And while Jesus stood in the boat teaching, all Peter had to do was listen. And sometimes that's what we do in discipleship. We need God's word. We're just listening. But then there are times where Jesus, just like he does to Peter here, calls Peter to work. You see, it's one thing to help other people follow Jesus. It's one thing to tell others how you should respond, how you should repent, how you should believe, how you should apply the gospel. It's quite another thing when Jesus himself begins to reach into your life and to tell you how you are to respond. And this is what Peter encountered. He had no problem obliging Jesus, the professional preacher. But when Jesus turned into the professional fisher, Peter took issue with it. Peter's like, no, 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 no. I I do the fishy, fishy. You do the preachy, preachy. That's how the boat works. Peter let Jesus know that he and his partners have been fishing all night long. More than that, he says, we toiled. We worked hard. We were sweaty and exhausted of dropping these heavy nets and trolling through the sea. These experts worked extremely hard and the fruit of their labor was not the smallest minnow. And more than that, where did Jesus meet these guys? What were they doing? They were cleaning their nets. That meant they're done. I used to work uh, in, in a butcher shop and I was the cleanup boy and I would come in and I'd, I'd begin to clean at the end of the night and the, the worst thing to clean was the meat grinder for obvious reasons. And so it was really complex. You had to take it apart, you had to wash it down, then you had to put it back together. But every now and then, we would run out of ground beef, I would have already cleaned the meat grinder and then one person comes up and they say, do you have any ground beef? And I say, no. (laughs) And then we do the thing where you just look at each other. (laughs) And then you say, yes, honey, I'll go make the ground beef. (laughs) And you put everything back together and you dirty it again and you clean it again. And it becomes this whole process. This is what Peter just did with his net. He cleaned it. He labored. We're done. And this is oftentimes what it feels like to follow Jesus. We partition off portions of our life. It's easy to give us things that give him things that cost little. But other places we say, no, 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 Jesus, I'm finished with that. I'm done with that. Or you, you don't know what it's like to be in my shoes in this specific place. I've got a handle on it. What you, what you want me to do, I can tell you it's not going to work. We can figure out a better way around this. And now because we're reading words on a page here, we can't really discern the tone behind Peter's response. Did he say optimistically, but at your word, I will lower the nets. Or did he say begrudgingly, at your word, I'll lower the nets, you crazy preacher man. But whether he obeyed joyfully or skeptically, His obedience was rewarded, and we know for certain the emotions he had afterwards. Don't we see that? Peter's deferral to the words of Jesus, him letting Jesus choose what's next, 
produced a miraculous fruit. What Peter thought impossible to bring the slightest benefit proved to be of larger benefit than Peter could have ever imagined. And did you notice Peter's response to Jesus? If you were Peter and you were a fisherman who was starving and failing at getting fish, maybe this is why Jesus called Peter as a disciple. He's like, yeah, God might have a different plan in your life. Uh, and so he, he, uh, Peter probably would have seen in Jesus, if he were you or me, I found the world's greatest fishing partner. Like, let's get Jesus on board. Let's make a business plan. We will, we'll have those fish bumper stickers and everyone will know what we're talking about. But instead, did you notice how Peter responded? The reward of his deferral, the reward of his obedience revealed the absolute holiness and wonder of Jesus. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man Oh Lord, there will be times in your walk with Jesus where he calls you in obedience to do things that seem fearful and costly to you. Obeying Jesus might mean bringing to light sins that you have kept in darkness for a long period of time. Obeying Jesus might look like leaving a lucrative job for a better way of honoring Jesus or caring for your family. Obeying Jesus might look like breaking up with the person you're dating who does not share the same affection for Jesus. Obeying Jesus might look like standing against the tides of culture, but when we are willing to defer, when we are willing to let Jesus choose first, what we are met with is the astounding nature and character of our King. He is holy and we are not. He is perfect, and we are sinful. He is always right, and we are most of the time doubting and wrong. But when we defer, we see the promise of God in full. One of our memory verses earlier this year, Proverbs 30, verse five. We see this every time we obey. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield for those who take refuge in him. You see, in obedience, we encounter the reality that this shield-bearing, truth-speaking, fish-bringing, boat-commanding Jesus is not like us, and yet he has given his word for us. When we obey Jesus, when we defer off of our own experience because of who we believe Jesus to be, we encounter Jesus's holiness. We encounter his otherness. We encounter his power, his beauty, and his perfection. And obedience actually becomes a bit more fearful, but in all the right ways. It is fearful because we know that obeying Jesus Now, this flies in the face of our cultural ethos today. In following Jesus, we know that we need to distrust our own experience and instead trust the word of the Holy Lord, that he is not like us, and therefore he is perfect where we are not. But in the process of this deferral, we realize that this Lord is worthy to be wholly trusted. That he alone knows because he designed what it looks like to live a life at peace. And yet I love the portrait here. Let's read this all in context, the portrait we see in this passage. Sometimes following Jesus is as easy as listening. Sometimes following Jesus is as simple as seeing what you already have. I've got this boat, sure Jesus, you can use it. Sometimes following Jesus becomes a bit more difficult where he asks us to work and to put out deeper and lower our nets. And sometimes there are places where we follow Jesus and it seems that our obedience has caused us to sink. But the beautiful picture in this story is that these men with breaking nets and sinking ships made it to the shore safely. We fear so many things because life in this world is fearful. We'll come back to that in a minute. 
But what we see here in the midst of what seemed like chaos, that obedience had opened up. Jesus didn't miraculously cause the boats to float. Jesus didn't miraculously cause all of his disciples to walk on water. And yet, all of these men made it to the shore safely. Even though it was difficult, even though they realized they had limited control, our obedience might call us into difficult and scary circumstances, but our obedience keeps us with Jesus, and that is the safest place you can be. The last season of my life has proven this tension in painful and beautiful ways. I've learned that obedience to Jesus as big and powerful of this is the drama of faith. This is what following Jesus looks like. Obedience is not always easy. Obedience is not always simple, but obedience is always beautiful, even when it feels you're sinking, even when it seems that like in quicksand, every move you make to to attempt to obey Jesus feels more crushing and more crushing. But at the end, there is a shore safe for those who stay in the boat with Jesus. Obedience for me is learning to actively distrust my experience, that is what I've known, And my expectation, that is what I think, in faith that Jesus has something better for me. Obedience is learning to distrust my experience and my expectations in faith that Jesus has something better for me. It says, I'm not sure. I'm a bit scared. But at your word, I'll do it. The beauty of this is at the end of it, these guys didn't come off the boat and say, Jesus, you almost sunk us. What stood out was not the difficulty of the situation, but the faithfulness of their savior. Jesus might call you to something big, something difficult, and something scary, but the beauty of following a holy, providential Jesus is that at every step we take, Jesus proves himself as faithful. You might worry about what happens six steps down the road and if you can endure that cross, but Jesus calls us step by step. Eric Little was a missionary who used to be an Olympian. And he said this, he said, God's will is only revealed to us step by step. He reveals more as we obey what we know. Surrender means that we are prepared to follow his will step by step, as it is revealed to us, no matter what. Followers do just that. We follow. Where Jesus goes, we go. And this might bring us into deep waters, face to face with terrifying people, but this isn't where the story ends. Not only do these men make it back safely, but in the midst of feeling like obedience is overwhelming, Jesus speaks to them. Look at verses five or eight through 11. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus's knees saying, depart from me for I'm a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who are with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. The joy of following Jesus is that when we are fearful, Jesus speaks peace to us. Now, as I said, this world is a fearful place. But this is what this means. It means it is fearful to disobey. And it means it is fearful to obey. We cannot, in a broken world, avoid fear. But only one of those options between obedience and disobedience is met with the words of your Savior, do not fear. Only one of them is met with peace. The wild thing about this text is the fishermen in the midst of this, they didn't fear their failure anymore. They didn't fear that they couldn't find fish. 
They didn't fear that the boats were sinking. They didn't fear the nets were breaking. They feared Jesus. This might seem unusual to you, but this is exactly what following Jesus is. When our primary fear is where we stand before a holy king, that same king, Jesus Christ, offers us peace by the blood of his cross. That's what salvation is. The promise that sinners through faith can sit fearlessly at the feet of Jesus. And when that fear is solved, the world becomes a little bit safer. Because we don't fear the sinking, we don't fear the tearing, we don't fear the failure, because we no longer fear the effects of our sin. We see our Lord as faithful and kind and everything else we can endure. And Jesus speaks to the midst of this. They're already obeying. It's already fearful. Their boats are sinking. And Jesus says, don't fear. I've got more for you to do. Don't fear. The work is just starting. Don't fear. I'm going to make you a fisher of people. We are going to catch men. We are going to preach the gospel. And you have no idea where this is going to take you. And in the midst of all the drama of following Jesus, this man is astonished. And this is our last, these men are astonished. This is our last point today. As desire, duty, and deferral push us deeper into the water, what we're met with is not fearful apprehension, but instead joyful and willing following. This is the final point today. This is doxology at the feet of Jesus We sing the song every now and then, doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. That word doxology comes from the Greek word doxa, which means to praise. And a life of following Jesus is at its core, praising Jesus. The drama of obedience is wrapped in the experience of worship. This is why it pays to to read God's word closely. Because if you'll notice, Luke is drawing us to the heart here. In verse three, Jesus asks Peter to use his boat. In verse four, Peter, or Jesus commands Peter to go out deeper and to lower his nets. But here, Peter, James, and John leave everything and follow Jesus without ever being asked. Remember how this scene started. Two disgruntled fishermen with empty boats sitting on the shore. Fishermen left them and then went on to something else. But here those same boats are full to the brim with fish. Everything they ever wanted and they leave it all behind. Why? Because of the privilege of worship. The privilege of being called into a life of service to something greater and better than you could ever imagine. There was a study on consumption of social media that showed the group of young adults who were the most disciplined and used social media the least were those who were in pre-law or pre-med studies. How did they avoid the black hole of technological drift? Because they realized there was something bigger to live for. They were able to say no to their phones and to the present fears of feeling like they didn't belong or didn't know what was going on because they knew where they were going. This is the experience these men had with Jesus and this is the experience Jesus would have with you. There's this wonderful play on words that Luke has in the Greek here where these men are amazed at the catch but these are the men who are seized with amazement. By the end, it's not the fish that were caught, but the hearts of his disciples. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German theologian and martyr, famously said that when Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. To a world, this seems terrifying. But for those who step by step live the dying life, That is, as Paul says, bearing in our body the death of Christ, we realize that each step we go, Christ is sufficient. That Jesus is better.
that as we die to ourselves, to our experiences, to our careers and our expectations, the work of our flesh and the idols of our heart, at the end of it, we say, it is worth all of it. That there is something greater. Here are men who before Jesus' call were tired because despite their work, they took nothing, but after Jesus called them into deep obedience, they were willing to leave everything. This is what it looks like to follow Jesus, a life of worship which holds everything loosely in order to cling to Christ fully. Eric Little, as I mentioned, was an Olympic sprinter, medalist, turned down endorsements in his second Olympics because he felt God was calling him to be a missionary to China where he died penniless in a prison camp. But listen to the vision that compelled his life. I find I need more than an ideal. I need a savior to save me from the guilt of sin, to save me from the power of sin. I need a savior whose grace is sufficient to enable me to live a life of unselfish service and love. Consider how Jesus speaks to his disciples, how he might speak to you. Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Brothers and sisters, we see the calling of the first disciples in this text. We see apostles being called in this text. But at the end of this passage, the question is not what does it look like for you to follow Jesus? Because we all come in varied spots. These men were not just followers. They were disciples. They weren't just disciples. They were three of Jesus' closest, and their ministries were going to be profoundly impactful. To a large degree, you cannot do what Peter, James, and John did, but that's not the question. The question is, do you see who Peter, James, and John see? Because if we see that, we see everything. As one artist said, you can take the world and its fleeting treasure, but give me Jesus, our future hope and greatest treasure. Let's pray. Lord, your word has gone forward. It has gone before us most clearly and visibly in the person of Jesus Christ and in your scriptures. And it has gone forward today through a weak man who stands on the promises of God. And that word calls us to Christ. It bids us to come and die. It fills us with something so profound that we are willing to leave everything. And Lord, we ask that it commissions us today. We ask all this in your name. Amen.